0: welcome to the beltline church of christ podcast we're so glad you found us please take a second and hit the subscribe button so that you can be notified of these weekly podcasts most of all we hope this podcast will help you take your next step with jesus if you want to know more about us you can visit us at www.beltlinechurchofchrist.org here's today's lesson
1: we're in matthew chapter 7 Continuing a series of lessons looking chronologically at the life of Jesus Christ. And we are here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in Jesus' kingdom manifesto that we know as the Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew chapter 7 verse 1 begins with a bang. Judge not, he says, lest you yourself be judged. Judge not that you be not judged. You know, one of the negatives... That you hear about the church is that often we are too judgmental. And it is this passage, Matthew chapter 7 verse 1, that is supposed to end all arguments. When people have disagreements with Christians over lifestyle choices or a variety of other issues. Christians who happen to disagree with choices people make are often called unloving, uncaring, and many other things on top of those things. And judge not that you be not judged is the rally cry for those who really just want to shut up Christians uh, from trying to stand on their beliefs. And that attitude, that, that response I think represents the spirit of the age in which we live in. Ours is a spirit of compromise. The age we live in is a age of compromise. And while compromising is in some context very, very important, in other areas it refers to a mindset that never evaluates and hates doctrine and hates conviction and confrontation and absolutes and theology. And judge not, I need you to get this today, judge not that you be not judged is spoken most by those who have no idea what Jesus is actually saying. Judge not that you be not judged is spoken most by those who have no idea what Jesus is saying. And I would guess this morning that the people who refer to this verse the most are those who understand it the least. From homosexuality to alcohol abuse to you name it, on and on the list could go. The response to those behaviors when you say that they are not in accordance with the word and will of God, the answer is, judge not that you be not judged. But... Is that what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 7 verse 1? What is really going on here in this kingdom manifesto? What's going on here in Matthew chapter 7? Remember that the theme of the Sermon on the Mount is righteousness from the inside out. And the key verse to me is Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20. Where Jesus says that our righteousness needs to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. We have to have a different kind of righteousness from that of those religious leaders. They wore theirs on their sleeve and it was superficial and it was ungodly. Ours, however, must grow out of a heart that is committed to God the Father. And so Jesus, here in Matthew chapter 7, is continuing that theme because he knew... That the Pharisees were experts in judging others self-righteously. The Pharisees were experts at judging each other self-righteously. Righteously, And it is this kind of judging that God is going to speak very, 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 very clearly against. Not just to the Pharisees back then, but to the Pharisees that are still among us today. And Jesus says that there are some problems with self-righteous judging. And I want to just share two problems with you that comes when we judge self-righteously. Here's the first. Self-righteous judging is hyper-critical. I didn't say hypocritical. I said hypercritical. And here's what I mean by that. Hypercritical means I'm always going around looking for and digging for faults in someone else. Someone who is hypercritical is always on the prowl searching to find something going wrong in your life. Because you know what? When you begin with yourself as the standard, everybody else can look kind of bad. (laughs) I know in my own life, it's easy for me to be judgmental in those areas where I, uh, at least for the moment, seem to have my act together. But if you were to bring up something where I'm not as positive in my life, I'm going to change the subject pretty quickly because I don't want to go there. That's self-righteousness. It's a failure to be poor in spirit, which is that very first beatitude. Remember, we talked about whim right? And how all of us are that, and, and, and yet... This is what we've got to avoid, this hypercritical judgment. Because when you feel that you can stand on your own worth, that's when you start judging hypercritically. You see, Jesus, here in this section of Scripture, is not saying that we should never assess people with, with, with some kind of discrimination in our minds. What Jesus is preaching against is this harsh, judgmental spirit. John Stott, who's written extensively on the Sermon on the Mount very, very well, says this, Jesus does not tell us to cease to be men by suspending our critical powers, which help to distinguish us from the animals, but he is encouraging us to renounce the presumptuous ambition to be God by setting ourselves up as judges. And the attitude of someone who is self-righteously judging is an attitude that says, I can see like God sees. I know what's going on in your world. I know your motives. I I, I can see what you're thinking. I know everything that has led you to where you are at this moment in your spiritual journey. And none of us can know that, but that's the attitude. And this is the kind of judging that Jesus wants to eliminate. And rest assured, there are many people who call themselves Christians who certainly need to hear this message some of the criticism that the church gets about being judgmental is absolutely warranted. And my prayer is that that will never again be the case for this church or, or, or any church that calls Jesus Lord. May it never be so here at Beltline. There are a couple passages that I think kind of uh, coincide with this. Romans 14, for example, verse 4, Paul says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And this other great passage in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 3. But with me, Paul says, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. So here's the bottom line in this. We cannot know everything in everybody's heart, right? This is where I really need you to say yes, okay? We cannot know everything in everybody's heart, right? That's right. And so since we don't know what's going on in somebody else's heart, we've got to be very careful here. I can't read all your motives. You can't read my motives. I can't see as God sees. You can't see as God sees. But above all, I shouldn't be going around trying to find faults in you that I can then hold up as something that God never intended me to do. And I need you to know it's really important to not be self-righteous in our judging because of what he says in verse 2 of Matthew chapter 7. He says, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it's going to be measured back to you, right? And so self-righteous judging has a boomerang effect. Uh, the What you're going to use on somebody else, guess what? God's going to end up using on you. Now, I don't know about you, but that makes me want to be amazingly gracious. <laughs> Right. I want to give you every benefit of the doubt. I want to give you all the grace and mercy that I possibly can because that's what I need and that's what I want God to do for me. Randy Harris said it this way. We need to be as generous in our judgments as we want generosity to be given to us. That sounds a lot like the golden rule uh, that we'll be looking at here in just a minute at the end of this lesson today. Uh, But let's take a look at the second problem with uh, self-righteous judgment first. Not only is it hypercritical, always going around trying to find faults in somebody else, but it is hypocritical. Self-righteous judgment is also hypocritical. It's two-faced you know, we tend to, to look through bifocals, right? We, we use the bottom part to see ourselves and it has this nice little rosy tint to ourselves and, uh, and and we're able to look past our own shortcomings. But the top part, we use to look at others. And this is what Jesus is denouncing. Like the parable in Luke 18. Do you remember this parable? You have this Pharisee that comes in to, uh, to pray and, and he stands thus with himself and he raises his hands to the Lord and he says, oh God. God, you're so lucky to have me in your kingdom. I give a tithe of everything I possess. I'm a good person. I'm not like that loser over there. And you know, the loser can't even lift his eyes up in the heaven, but he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, right? Uh, you know the story. He looks through the top at himself, at the, excuse me, at the scumbag on his knees, <coughs> and he uses the bottom part to see himself. Can I tell you this? Jesus uses his most stinging rebukes for people like that. People that call themselves follower of God, who act like that. Jesus gives his most stinging rebuke to people like that. Now Jesus' humorous side slips out in Matthew chapter 7 verse 3. It says, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that's in your own eye? <laughs> Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there is this log in your own eye. It looks like a, a scene out of the Three Stooges. My dad loved the Three Stooges, right? I, and this is, this is what I think Jesus is doing here. It's just, so it's deadly, he says, to have somebody with a, with a plank, with a two by four sticking out of his eye, trying to remove a piece of sawdust from yours. And yet that's how the Pharisees were. And dare I say, that's how we can be sometimes. God forgive us. Now the question is, what is this two by four, this plank that Jesus is talking about? Is the two by four just a worse sin that you've committed in your life? No, that's not what the two by four is. The two by four is what we've been talking about. This self-righteousness. This, I'm going to appoint myself as the official spec inspector of the church. And so when you walk in, I'm looking. I'm on the prowl. I'm trying to find something wrong with you that I can point out so that we can make this place sound and and we can make this place righteous and we can make this place holy. That's craziness. That's craziness. God makes us holy, not some self-appointed spec inspector. And the problem is we can see things so well in others' lives that displease us. But when we do that, Jesus says, man, usually we're a little hypercritical and we're a little hypocritical when we do now, Jesus doesn't stop here. He, he, he doesn't instruct us to stay out of other people's business. He doesn't say don't speak into somebody's life. He gives us the responsibility of helping a fellow Christian. But he wants us to do it in a certain way. He wants to do it with loving correction. That's why he says what he says in verse 5. You hypocrite, take the log out of your own eye first, and then you will be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So what is the loving Christian thing to do? When a friend comes to you and they have a speck in their eye, they have a sin in their life, uh, what's the loving thing to do? Turn and walk away? No, you tell them, right? She has a speck in her eye. She's in pain. Refusing to help isn't the loving response. What if your child came to you with a splinter in his finger? He's crying. He says, please take the splinter out. What's the Christian thing to do? Leave it there? No, of course you take it out. And so Jesus tells us there is a place for some discernment in people's lives. If your brothers and sisters have specks or splinters, you need to take them out. But first, you got to take the two by four out of, self, of self-righteousness out of your own eye first. First things first, get rid of that two by four, then go help your brother. This is why Galatians 6 is so important. It says if there's a brother or sister who's, who's caught in a sin... You remember what he says in verse 1, Galatians 6, 1? You who are spiritual. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. A spirit. You who are spiritual, not you who are self-righteous. You who have evidence of the fruit of the spirit in your, your life. You go restore that person. You go take care of that person. Now, Matthew chapter 7, verse 6 says, Don't give what's holy to the dogs, and don't throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. Now, that seems a little strange, but listen. Another responsibility Jesus doesn't eliminate is us discerning who the spiritual hogs and who the spiritual dogs are. And so if you believe that, judge, uh, that uh, Matthew chapter 7 verses 1 through 5 prohibits any kind of judging whatsoever, you got a big problem contextually with verse 6. Because Jesus is saying you've got to use some kind of criteria to decide who those spiritual hogs and dogs really are. Now Jesus called them as he saw them. He saw the Pharisees and said you're a bunch of snakes. He called Herod a fox and now in this section of scripture he says I don't want I, I want to talk to you about people who act like pigs and dogs and he says don't give them what's holy Don't give them what's sacred You say what in the world is going on here? What does this mean? This is a little hard for us to understand how many of you have dogs? dogs Come on, raise them up high. How many of you love your dogs? How many of you treat your dogs better than you treat your neighbors? How many? Yes, you're right. Some of you, uh, some of you paint their toenails, and and some of you cook them steak. Your dog eats better than most people in my house. <laughs> you know that, right? So this is hard for us to understand. What do you mean, don't don't give what's holy to the dog? We love our dogs. That's not what Jesus has in mind here when he's saying hogs and dogs. Jesus is talking about that flea-infested street mutt that doesn't care whether they have filet mignon or they have putrefied ox intestine. They don't care. They don't care. It makes no difference to them. And so he says, don't throw the the, the steak, the the, the filet mignon, to those who would just as much rather have the other. And he says, don't give pearls to pigs either. Because you know what they're going to do? They're going to sniff them for a moment, trample them, and to show their gratitude, they're going to turn around and try to tear you to shreds. Because you can take a pig and put him in a bathtub. You can wash him and brush his teeth and you can do all that. And guess what? He's going to run right back to the mud. Because that's what he is. And that's what he does. And Jesus is saying, whether you, this is, seems harsh, but I need you to get it. Jesus is saying there are some people who are like that. But his point is, don't waste spiritual treasures on those who have no spiritual interests. The problem is, (laughs) when somebody makes us mad, we often think, eh, spiritual hog, I don't have to say anything to them. Spiritual dog, I don't have to mess with that. This is the exception, not the rule, guys. This is the exception, not the rule. In fact, Scripture, Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sends out the 12 on a limited commission. He says, listen, don't waste your time in those places where you're not received. Do you remember what he said? Shake the dust off of your feet and move on, right? Acts chapter 18, verse 6. When they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments, this is Paul they're talking about, and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. For now on, I will go to the Gentiles. We've got to use that kind of discernment and not waste spiritual treasures on people who are just going to trample them. But again, that's the exception, not the rule. We don't jump on this idea and stop trying to tell people about Jesus. We don't stop evangelizing. But listen, there are going to be people who have no spiritual interest. So don't waste your time there. Because there's a whole lot of people in this world that do have spiritual interest. And God wants us to engage and invest in them. Now after these first six verses... In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is going to take a more positive approach, and I'm glad that he did. And not surprisingly, these commands are consistent uh, with the character of God. And so, uh, let's read Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. Let me say this first before I go there. I I, I think it's important to say this. Obviously, I put it on the screen, and I almost skipped it, and I don't want to do that. Uh, If I can accept that God has been generous toward me, Then, shouldn't I, as a follower of God, take it upon myself to treat others the way I want to be treated? How are you doing with that? How are you doing with that? If God has been so generous to me, how am I doing giving that generosity to others? Matthew chapter 7 verse 7 Let's look at the more positive side of this <clears throat> Ask and it will be given to you seek and you will find knock and it will be opened to you for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks it will be opened or which one of you if his son asks him for bread will give him a stone or if he asks for a fish will give him a serpent if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is the law and the prophets. So I want to ask this question. Why obey the golden rule that we read in Matthew chapter 7 verse 12? I think there are a couple reasons why. First, this is God's example to us. Uh, the way God is, this is the way God is. He is, uh, he is someone who treats us the way uh, that he wants to be treated himself. I don't know if you've noticed in this sermon that, uh, that, that, that he told us we ought to treat others based on the way that he has already been treating us. And so we ask the question, how has God treated us? Well, that's what verse 7 and 8 is all about. Ask, it will be given. Knock, the door will be open. Seek, you will find. That's how God treats us. And so he's saying, I want you to treat others the same way. Full of mercy, full of grace, full of love. Start beating on the door and somebody will open it, God says. And so if someone's beating on our door, we need to open it. And we need to show them God's mercy and show them God's love. A young child was going off to pray. And he said to his family, I'm going to be praying to God. Does anybody want anything? (laughs) I'm not quite sure he understands the full measure of prayer, but I love his confidence, don't you? I I mean, that is a great positive attitude that God is going to answer our prayers. Because listen, can we be honest? There are times when we pray thinking, I don't think God's going to answer this, right? I'm going to pray it, but I don't really think he's going to come through. I don't think he's going to answer this one. Is it just me that's like that, or do you struggle with that too? I'm going to pray for this person who's sick, but I don't really believe he's going to heal. I'm going to pray for this situation that I'm in, but I don't really think he's going to come through. That's not how God treats us. And that's not how we should treat others. I want to follow that child's example instead. Now, I'm going to confess to you something. There are some sections of scripture that I just wish were a little clearer or just weren't there at all. And this may be one of them because so many people don't understand what Jesus is saying here. People read these verses and they believe that God's just going to grant anything and everything that they ask. He's like a genie in a bottle and you rub him, he's going he's to give you exactly what you want. And when that doesn't happen, when people pray and they don't get what they want, then people have their faith shattered and many people walk away from God. I mean, God said, pray that the mountain would move and it would move. And so people pray, hey, I prayed yesterday, the mountain moved and it's still there. So what is this all about? But let me just say that's an unrealistic approach that has destroyed faith in people. So the question is, what does Jesus mean here? Because you may have asked for things that weren't given. Maybe a life wasn't prolonged. Maybe a handicap wasn't healed. And I can't answer. I can't stand up here and pretend to have the answers to why. But I do know we have to rely on the goodness of God and we have to rely on the justice of God and we have to rely on the wisdom of God. John Stott said it this way, perhaps we would put the matter in this way, being good, our heavenly father gives us only good gifts to his children. Being wise as well, he knows which gifts are good and which ones are not. You think you've ever prayed for something that ultimately would have harmed you down the road? Remember in high school, that girl that you really liked? And you prayed, oh, but can you imagine if if he had answered that prayer where you'd be today? Right? So not only is God good, God is wise. And sometimes, every time, he's wiser than us. And so we pray, and then we trust that God has our best interest in mind. Because these two qualities go together. He's good and he's wise, and so he knows how to answer us. Verses 9 through 11 make that clear. Right? A good parent doesn't give his child a pet rattlesnake. Right? (laughs) You're not going to do that. It doesn't make any sense to do that. And so God's example is one of the reasons we should follow the golden rule. But not only that, because this is God's consistent instruction to us. He says this sums up the law and the prophets, right? Paul would say the same thing in in Romans 13 verse 8. He would say, oh, no one anything except to fulfill, except to love each other for the one who loves has fulfilled the law. So we follow the golden rule because God's example and we follow it because this has been God's instruction from the beginning of time. From, from Adam and Eve on, this is what he's wanted us to treat each other uh, the way that we ourselves want to be treated. And none of us wanted to be treated like dirt. None of us want to be treated like less than or, or, or lower than. None of us want that. So why would we treat people that way? Why would we even think about treating someone that way? After all, as we've already said, he's so generous to us. How can we not be generous back? I want to talk though about the golden rule a little bit as we wrap this up this morning. And I want to talk first by uh, looking at what the golden rule is not. Because I think sometimes we can have some misunderstandings about the golden rule. So let's talk about what the golden rule is not. First, the golden rule is not a law of preparation. And what I mean by that is do unto others before they get a chance to do to you. That that is not the golden rule. That is a law of preparation, uh, not the golden rule. But have you ever lived that way? I'm going to beat them to the punch. Jesus could have lived that way. In the upper room, the night he was betrayed, he knew what Judas was going to do. He knew he, his time had come. He knew he had the opportunity to beat Judas to the punch. He could have exposed him, but he doesn't do that. What does he do? Well, he wraps a towel around his waist. And he takes a basin of water. And he washes the feet of the one who would betray him. The Sermon on the Mount is not a law of preparation. Do unto others before they get a chance to do something to you. The sermon, or the, the golden rule is also not a law of reciprocation. Do unto others because they did unto you. This is the one we need to hear probably the most. Can I get a no yeah from you? No? Okay. Uh, <laughs> Do unto others because... This is where we live. This is us. Come on, let's be honest this morning. This is our struggle. This is the way the Pharisees were living. They had taken this Matthew 5, 38, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth thought out of the Old Testament, stripped it from its context, and made it a rule for living. They said if somebody doesn't do something, uh, if somebody does something to you, then this is how you treat them. You go get them. You go after them. You go back. You, You get punched back harder. If they're nice, okay, be nice. But if they're evil, do evil. It's not all bad, but it's certainly not the way of God. It is not the way of God. The golden rule is not a law of preparation. It's not a law of reciprocation. And it's not a law of manipulation. Do unto others so that they will do unto you. We know this approach, don't we? It looks like the golden rule, but it has a hidden agenda. (laughs) You're doing right, not because it's right. You're doing right to get something from somebody else. And Jesus could have lived this way too. Remember Matthew chapter 4? Satan tempts Jesus to jump off the temple. He says, let the angels catch you. Surely that would have impressed the crowds, right? So much so that many of them probably would have followed Jesus. Jesus could have lowered the demands of discipleship and manipulated everyone with that great feat. But he chose not to do that. Because that's not what the golden rule is. It's not a law of preparation or reciprocation or manipulation. Let's talk about what the golden rule is. Jesus says I need you to treat people the way that you think it's right. Whether they ever treat you that way or not doesn't matter. I need you to do what is right. I need you to, to change the, the, the direction. I need you to be a, a stopgap for me. I need you to treat others the way that you think is right whether they do or not. And so listen, if If you were beaten up half naked along the side of the road and somebody came walking up to you, what kind of behavior would you recommend? Like the priest or the Levite and the good Samaritan who walked on the other side or or like the Samaritan who stopped and helped? How would you want to be treated? If you were 14 and pregnant, what kind of behavior would you recommend? Would you want others to be embarrassed every time they saw you or to treat you with love unconditionally? If you were homeless, what kind of recommendation would you give? How would you want to be treated? Get a job! If you didn't have any food, how would you like to be treated? What if gossip were circulating about you? How would you How would you like to respond? Any of us, any of us can live by the negative side of this. Preparation, manipulation, reciprocation. Any of us can live that way. But that's not enough. For Jesus, And it certainly shouldn't be enough for those of us who have kingdom-shaped hearts. And I believe everybody sitting in this room today has those hearts. He says, my love is active. He says, my love is not about saving your own skin. It's, it's not about, uh, uh, by not doing certain things that you don't want coming back on you. Uh, so whenever you see somebody, God says you have an opportunity to treat them the way that God treats you. Dream with me. What would happen? What would happen if God's generosity became ours? What would happen? If when we looked at people we looked not for what's worse in them and not with skepticism but we looked for the image of God. What if we we showed the same generosity to others that that we want them to show to us, when they look at us. What might happen church? If God's generosity became our generosity. And we did it at school. We did it at school, because this isn't just for the old folks. This is for y'all too. What happened if we did it there? Uh, what, if we, what if we did it at our workplaces? What if we did it on the sports field? What if we did it on a court? Wherever we find ourselves. Well, on a band field, playing an amp. What, what if God's generosity became our generosity? What might it look like? Can can you think, can you dream with me a little about about how the world would be changed or at least the city that we live in would be changed if we just lived with God's generosity and we said, I'm not going to be afraid, I'm not going to be ashamed, I'm not going to back down, I'm not going to be a coward. I'm going to say I'm a Christian and I'm going to live it. I'm going to live it out in every possible way that I can because this is what Jesus calls me to do as his follower. What if his generosity became ours? why shouldn't his generosity already be ours it should and it must it must and when we and i'm not saying you're not many of you are already living that way i get that i'm talking to myself here too what if what if god's generosity became mine i can only imagine can only imagine but i don't want it to be just something i dream about i want it to be a reality so how about tomorrow how about this afternoon We start living by this rule, treating others the way we want to be treated, the way that God has treated us. I don't know where you are today. I don't know uh, what's going on in your world. I don't know if you need prayers. I don't know if you need to obey the gospel, but I do know this, you're in the right place. And Jesus has the answers for whatever it is that you need today. And if we can help you in that, if we can pray for you, if we can encourage you, we certainly want to do that.
0: Thanks again for listening. If you are in North Alabama... We would love to have you visit and worship with us. Also, if this lesson blessed you today, don't forget to hit the share button and share this message with someone else. Hope you will join us again next week. As we close, here is our prayer for you. I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Have a great week.